Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made um, foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom, um, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. And again, he, he ties in another Old Testament reference this time to the book of Jeremiah. So, this is, this is kind of the quote, this is kind of, again, the, these intersections where, where Paul's kind of jumping into to some Old Testament in reference to Jesus. Um, now, if, if you can, let's do this real quick, because this, this really helps, helps us understand what's going on in Corinthians. If you got a Bible, Isaiah 29, let's go back and look at that verse real quick. And we'll just read two verses here, Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. The Lord speaking through Isaiah. The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. This is uh, Jesus quotes this. I want to say in in the book of Mark, when he, uh, in the book of Mark, maybe chapter six, when he's talking to uh, to the Pharisees, and then fourteen is what Paul quotes when he says, "Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish." One of the things that's happening in Isaiah 29, and I think this, again, because again, why does Paul choose this, choose this verse to insert, right? Paul would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. So why is he choosing this verse? One of the things that's happening in Isaiah 29 is that Assyria is camped on the border of Israel ready to attack, right? They're ready to invade the nation of Israel. So Israel, right, instead of running to Yahweh, Instead of confessing sin, instead of repenting, instead of going to God for protection and deliverance, 
Israel follows human counsel, human wisdom, human knowledge, and they form an alliance with Egypt. Sorry, son, not, not your Egypt, okay? The old school Egypt. It's still your Egypt. The, the, yes, the Egypt who had decades earlier just enslaved them. So Assyria's here camped on their border ready to invade, and Israel's sending, in, in their wisdom and in their intelligence, their best laid plans are, you know what we should do? Let's, let's, let's align with Egypt, right? So again, these three passages, Jesus, Paul, the Old Testament, why connect these passages? I want to write this down. I, I think if, if I could sum up the sermon like this, During times of strife and division, we often turn to false anchors, right? We turn to these false anchors. So, for example, right, in the Isaiah passage, Israel's wisdom, Israel's knowledge, Israel's intellect leads them away from God to Egypt. This is a political move. Right, and and again, we talked about how relevant how relevant Corinth was to um, to, to today. How relevant is this? During times of strife and division, we turn to false anchors. We turn to political groups. Right, instead of turning to God, we use our wisdom and our. In- I'm not going to get too political, so don't don't get too scared. Okay. We use our wisdom and our intellect and we latch on to a particular political party, an agenda, an empire, a leader. And we think that that person will bring us safety and control and identity and security. Well, once that person gets into office, then, then we'll be good. Well, if we can just get that person out of office, if we can just recall this person or impeach that person, then we're really going to move forward, right? And and this is, listen, Christians are just as guilty for getting caught up in all this as anybody else, right? In times of strife and division, we turn to false anchors. One of the first ones we turn to, as old as the Bible itself, is political allegiances and political identity, right? Again, that's about as political I'll get. Maybe we'll do another political sermon sometime soon, right? So that's Israel. Corinth, in Corinth, they used their wisdom and their intellect, and and instead of making a political move, it was more of a relational move, right? Because what they did is they began to literally dismantle the unity that was brought together in the cross, right? The unity that was brought together in the cross. When the the primary work, one of the primary things that Jesus does on the cross is he's bringing people together, right? We who were once far from God are brought close through the cross, right? Through Jesus' blood. 
people who are different groups, different tribes, different nations, are brought together through the blood of, of Jesus, right? Salvation is about reconciliation. So if you were to kind of look at the flip side of that, what would anti-salvation look like, right? Anti-salvation would be separation or division, right? If, if the cross is about reconciling people to God and to one another, anti-cross would be about dividing people and separating them from one another. Does that make sense, right? <clears throat> And we've talked about this. This is really important when we think about sin. I want to talk about sin's cause and effect. <clears throat> Again, we'll start here. The effect of sin, right? Sin's primary effect. And this goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve sin. And the first thing they do is they turn on one another. And then they go and hide from God, right? Sin's primary effect is division, it's separation, it's isolation, it's feeling of being alone. Why is it when you sin, when you blow it, when you're upset, when you, when you go back to your kind of signature sin, do you feel so alone in that? Do we feel so guilty? Do we hide? Do we run? Do we, is our, our initial thought when we're sinning like, man, I can't wait to tell somebody about this. We're ashamed of it. Sin's effect is to divide us, it's to separate us, it's to isolate us, right? And then the cause of sin, the cause of this isolation and splitting and detachment is, is, is all found here in this one word. It's found in pride, right? It's found in boasting. It's found in arrogance. It's, it's, it's this self-assertion. It's this self-deification it's an attitude of placing myself at the center. It's assuming that I am the standard for what should happen around in the world, right? So when we read this passage, and even just reading it this morning, I'm like, man, this passage is a little bit difficult. Here's why it's a little bit difficult. Paul's fighting three fronts. Paul is dealing with the cause of sin, right? That's why you see him talking about boasting and pride and arrogance and how they shouldn't do that. He's dealing with the effect of sin, the divisions that it brings, right? The things that are happening as a result of this pride and knowledge and how I'm puffing myself up. And then he's also fighting one more front where he's then trying to take these two things and point them back to the cross where we're all equal, where we're all united, where we're all reconciled. Right? So in this passage, Paul is, is dealing with the cause of sin, the effect of sin, and then he's trying to point the Corinthian community back to the cross. How are we doing out there? Are we good? Everybody all right? What I want to do, and, and we'll see, I knew this sermon might be a little bit on the longer side, so let me see how much time we got here before those kids come running down those steps. I just want to work through these three things real, real quick. I just want to talk about the cause. I want to talk about pride for a little bit. I want to talk about the divisions a little bit, and then I want to just kind of end by talking about the cross. So again, the underlying cause of sin, right, in all of our lives is pride, right? It's the root. It's the self-boasting that's common to humanity. Now, I probably, you're probably sitting here thinking to yourself, yeah, that's not really my problem. I'm, I'm not, like, pride, arrogance, like, like that's, that's not me. Like, I, there's some other stuff that probably trips me up here and there, but 
pride, arrogance. No, that's that's other people. That's other people. Like we we know who those people are, trying to self promote themselves on social media and trying to like make themselves sound way better than they are. But but no, no, I'm I'm Tim Keller. I love the way he refers to pride. He calls it the carbon monoxide of sin, right? It's killing us without us even knowing, right? It's killing us without us even knowing. Um, and, and when I think about, when I think about pride too, cause even me, like, like I don't, it's not one of the things that jumps out to me and says like, oh wow, Eric, Eric, you're really like, you're really proud and, and that's your problem, right? Um, Tim, Tim Keller, you know, when he calls it the carbon monoxide, there's almost like this kind of, this certain confession that I would say almost needs to happen daily. It's something that I've been trying to practice a little bit more in my life, um, because I want to say this too, religious folks, Christian folks, church folks, um, we are often most at risk here, right? To think that pride is somewhere out there and, and it's not really here is just arrogance in itself, isn't it? So maybe there's a simple prayer. And again, this is something that I've almost been trying to incorporate into my daily life where you simply say, Lord, like show me my pride. And the way that it subtly and silently and invisibly is manifesting its its toxic nature in my soul and my relationships. Like that's just a sentence, right? Something along those lines. God, show me my pride. Show me where I'm arrogant. Show me the way that it's manifesting itself and, and it's killing me and it's killing those around me and it's killing my relationship with you. So here's an example. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example that's happened in my life of pride um, that, was, that was probably new for me to see. And then I'll give you a bunch of examples too. Um, so for me, a couple, a couple days ago, not this past week, maybe the week before, I was kind of putting some of the thoughts together for the sermon. And one of the things that I do, and my wife, you can ask my wife more about this on your own if you want to know more about this. I, I can slip into what I call, what she calls, or we call a funk. Like I can just kind of go off the rails and, and just kind of go into a little bit of a, a pity party. Like that. And you probably don't think that about me, but this is just a little pastoral confession. Like this is just one of the things I do, I, I, right? So I, I, I'm in this funk, right? I'm kind of in this little self-pity party. I'm simultaneously preparing this sermon. And what I realized is I felt this pride was kind of lurking in that, that little self-pity party, right? See, we think about pride as like, look at me, right? Like, look at me. We think about that arrogance, that boasting. But I really saw pride in my sulking, right? Poor Eric. Look at Eric. He's doing so much. He's working so hard. His kids interrupt him too much. He's so busy helping others. Poor, poor Eric, right? And, and I go, like I said, I can go into this funk. And what I realized in this moment was there was the carbon monoxide of pride, right? Choking me out. Killing me, right? And it was this moment of like, oh, that's what it is. It's not just trying to be big and, and, and great. It's sometimes in, in, this, in this other realm that pride is there. The cause of all sin is pride, right? Another example would be... <clears throat> Let me just, because that might not work for you, let me give you a couple other examples of pride. I think this is really important for us just to spend some time on. Pride is wanting to get your way 
And then how do you respond when you don't get your own way? Right? How do you respond when you don't get your way? What about when you feel slighted because you're not recognized? You've put in the work. You've made the effort. You've contributed to that project. And nobody's recognized you and you're hurt and you're wounded. You are annoyed or you're irritated because somebody didn't invite you to fill in the blank. How? How do, Wait, they didn't invite us? They didn't. We didn't. I thought we were... Right? You withdraw because somebody doesn't attempt, doesn't match your attempts towards intimacy or love or relationships, right? This is sometimes what I notice that I do is I, I will withdraw. You justify yourself and you refuse to listen to criticism. Somebody's trying to speak something to you. Um, they're trying to speak to you truth about your life, but you're just too busy justifying yourselves that you can even listen to what they're saying about you. You make the same mistake over and over. Think about all the ways that we attempt to perfect our surroundings. We are trying to perfect the people we're in relationship with. We're trying to give them our endless unsolicited advice, right? The ways that we try and distinguish ourselves, make ourselves unique. We don't allow ourselves to be loved. Right? You don't love yourself. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you think that you can just go be everything for everyone. Because you're the helper in the world. Religious folks, oftentimes, we think that, we don't, we don't say this out loud or probably really consciously think this, but subconsciously, sometimes, we think that God's pretty lucky to have us on his team, right? I mean, God, I know that I'm not perfect, but really, like, I'm, like, we're doing, like, hey, this church right here, like, God, you're kind of lucky to have us in Eastgate Park here, you know? And, and, and again, this pride is this carbon monoxide, right? And you see it in all the different ways that it, that it silently kills us. It's this carbon monoxide that's choking us out. Paul needs to humble us. Paul humbles the Corinthian church because this is what the Corinthian church was guilty of as well, was this pride. So in verses 26 through 29, (laughs) let me summarize. Paul says to the Corinthian church, and he also kind of speaks to us, you're not that smart, right? Not many of you were wise by human standards. If, if we were to kind of paraphrase that, eh, you're kind of dumb, right? And he says you're insignificant, you're common, and he calls this foolish, which is like dumb part two. He says you're weak, you're not the, the, the message says, has this little paraphrase, you're not the brightest or the best. Um, you're laughable in the world's eyes, I think is how the Passion Translation puts it. And it's interesting, we won't get into this, Paul actually then begins to, to kind of humble himself at the beginning of chapter 2 if you want to go read the way he hum, humbles himself. But if I were to say that to you, like, hey, you're dumb and insignificant and common and foolish and weak, that's a, that would offend you, wouldn't it? Right? But if you're able to hold that in one hand, right? If you're able to hold that in one hand, and then in verse 30, right? 
Because we're in Christ Jesus, we are righteous and holy and redeemed. Right? If you're able to hold both of those, if you're able to live in that tension, that's probably where the mature Christians are, are able to exist in this world. Where they understand, they're humble in the sense that they understand like, yeah, I'm not the brightest or the best. When the world looks at me and, and often sees me, I'm kind of laughable. I'm foolish. I'm just a common person. I'm not super significant, but I'm holy and I'm righteous and I'm redeemed. And when we live in that tension, when we hold both of those truths in our lives, I think again, to me, that's, that's a sign of a mature Christian, of a Christian who has some depth and some understanding. So pride, 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 the carbon monoxide of sin, the effect of pride is, is this division. It's this splitting. It's, it's what the Corinthian church was doing. It was stratifying itself. So who are the people groups that you look down on, right? Who do you roll your eyes at? Who do you attempt to separate yourself from? Oh, I'm, I'm, here's, I'm not an evangelical. Man, those evangelical Bible thumpers, no, 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 no. I'm not one of them, right? Oh, I know, sorry, we're actually from West Garden Grove, not East Garden Grove. We just want you to know that, you know. Oh, no, 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 we're not from Rossmore like those people over there. We're actually like West Garden Grove, or, right? I'd never vote for that person, right? So we understand that when we have this pride, this arrogance, this carbon monoxide, the effect is it's going to divide us, it's going to separate us. We're going to be looking for ways to distinguish ourselves one of my favorite kind of maxims that I've lived by, when we begin to trust ourselves, we begin to despise others, right? When you begin to trust yourself and think about yourself and have all this self-confidence in you, like, hey, hey, you actually begin to despise and look down on others. Ronald Rollheiser says this. He says, the greatest moral challenge that Jesus left us, right? Here's, here's the greatest moral challenge. He says, we all do pretty well in love when the persons we are loving are warm and gracious and kind, but can we be gracious and mellow in the face of bitterness, jealousy, hatred, and withdrawal? That is the litmus test of love, right? So you think about this person who you're dividing yourself from, you're separating yourself from, you're isolating yourself from, right? And you think about that person or that group of people or whoever and there you are, right, standing at the foot of the cross with them, right side by side, right? Or maybe at, at the heavenly banquet when, when God comes and restores all things and he sets out this beautiful banquet for, for his children, for those who have chosen to follow him. And there right next to you sitting at that heavenly banquet is that person who you just don't like. You just want to move your chair about six inches to the left. You just don't want to like look over the, give them your attention, right? So you, you see that it's, again, the, the subtle way that the, the, the pride creates the division. And then again, the cure is all found right here in the cross, right? It's all found right here in the cross because Paul's intersecting Jesus and the Old Testament. And he's saying that all knowledge, all wisdom, all identity is found and it's bedrocked on Jesus Christ crucified, right? Aaron, when you preached two weeks ago, towards the end of your sermon, you began to talk about, about the importance of the cross, 
in, in the way that we think about ourselves and, and our theology. It was really helpful. That, that really kind of resonated me back that the bedrock of Christian identity is right here, right? This is not the appendage. It's not something that we kind of add on. It's not something that we discuss on occasion. It is the heart and the soul and the premise. It's the cornerstone from which we mentally, relationally, spiritually engage our world is Jesus Christ reconciling, uniting the world, bringing together those who are lost to him. Everything is cross-shaped. And you guys know we talk about this a lot. When we are in the building, one of the things we do in the building is you guys know that the cross is the centerpiece, right? And it's, this, it's right in the center of, of, the, of, you know, kind of the stage or whatever you would call it. It's right in the center, the cross and the Eucharist. And then when I teach, right, when I teach, if this is kind of our, when I, I'm off to the side, I'm giving my commentary on the cross because this is the main piece. This is the focus. When Brian's playing music or Aaron's playing music, it's, it's just commentary on this, right? We're just talking, we're just pointing, we're just directing everybody on this. The focal point of all of everything, and even Paul's saying, right, he's preaching Christ crucified, right? His message is about the cross. Everything gets pointed back to the cross because the cross is the only thing that unites us all. Let me think if I have any, anything else I want to say because I think that's about it. Let me say a word of prayer. I think that's, that's, that's a, about it. Lord, as, as, uh, as I was taking communion this morning, you gave me a word, and I just want to share that word with people who are out there, and I think it's for somebody else out there. Um, the word that you gave to me this morning was don't give up. And I don't know who that's for this morning, but somebody needs to hear that this morning. Don't give up. And I pray this morning that as they gaze upon the cross, they would see a Savior who did not give up, who went all the way, strengthened by the Father, empowered by the Spirit. He went to the cross for you and for me, for everybody in this park and this neighborhood, this city, this world. It's foolishness, but it's true. Draw us once again to you. Draw us once again to the cross. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's do this, because we've got a couple minutes, and, and normally our church, we haven't, <laughs> we, we haven't done this for a while. What I want to do is um, turn to a person or a group of people next to you, and just, just I guess, like the one thing that, that stood out to you or the one thing you'd want to walk away from in this service or from this sermon. 
And, and I would say, because I said service, and that was probably actually more accurate. Maybe it was a lyric from a song. Um, maybe it was something the Lord spoke to you during the Eucharist. Maybe it was something from the sermon. Um, but just what was one thing? And then the, the second thing you could just chat on real quick would be that what we call the three Ps. The praise, things you agreed with. The pushback, things maybe that you didn't agree with. Things that you would kind of push back a little bit on. And then the problems, which would be, hey, I, I'd, I'd like to ask a further question in that, in that line of thought. So do that real quick. Turn to somebody next to you, the one thing, or the praise, the promise, or the praise, the problems, and the pushback.